Uh, if you're a fan of the New York Knicks, you know that the highlights of our team have been few and far between. We can fondly remember the 1990s, uh, the Patrick Ewing era, where we went through to 14 straight playoff appearances, uh, although never winning a title. If you want to go all the way back to finding when the Knicks won a title, you have to go all the way to 1973. The likes of Earl the Pearl Monroe, Walt Clyde Frazier, Willis Reed. But following those Ewing years of the 90s, the Knicks were awful. Uh, nearly a decade of losing seasons, one after the next after the next. However, in 2011, the Knicks looked hopeful. They were poised to make the playoffs that year. It was a, sh- a strike-shortened season, though, And after 21 games, the Knicks were in last place with a record of 8-13, and having lost 11 of their last 13 games. Then their star player went down, Carmelo Anthony. He went down with an injury. And with nowhere else to turn, the team looked to the little-known and lightly-played point guard by the name of Jeremy Lin from that great bastion of college basketball, Harvard University. And so Linsanity was born. For the next few weeks, whether you were a basketball fan or not, you heard about Jeremy Lin. The Asian uh, American community and Christian communities became enamored with Lin. Lin uh, was a Taiwanese and a believer. Let me tell you how Linsanity came to be. February 4th, 2012, the Knicks were struggling. Uh, again, eight and 13 losers of their 11 out of their last 13, and the rival New Jersey Nets were coming in to the garden. Lynn's NBA dreams hung in the balance. Before the game, Lynn's agent called him and said, if you don't play well now, uh, you will probably be your last game in the NBA, is what, they, what his agent told him. Well, Lynn came off the bench that night, scored 25 points, 7 assists, leading the Knicks to a much-needed win over the Nets. Two nights later, the next game, Lynn dropped in 28 with 8 assists in another win, this time against the Utah Jazz. A couple of nights after that, Lynn went into Washington and was dunking on the Washington Wizards for their third straight win. And next, the... Los Angeles Lakers were coming in to the Mecca, setting up a duel between Lynn and that perennial all-star future Hall of Famer, Kobe Bryant. Lynn scored 38 points that night. It was the only time in his career that Lynn would outscore Kobe. Next were the Toronto Raptors, February 14th. And with the score tied and the clock running down, it was Jeremy Lynn who delivered the game-winning shot at the buzzer. People were going crazy. In Lynn's first five career starts, this hero from Harvard scored 136 points. That's a record for anyone since the the NBA merger in their first five games as, as, as a starter. 136 points. And he led New York to 10 wins in 13 games, turning around the hopes and the imaginations of the New York fans. Jeremy Lin himself went from sleeping on friends' couches, taking cabs to the game, 
being mistaken for the team trainer to landing on Sports Illustrated covers Time's list of 100 most influential people. Now, sadly, before the season ended, Lynn's sanity ended because Lynn suffered a season-ending meniscus tear uh, that would deprive him from playing in the playoffs, which he got his team to. And uh, he would never, after that point, duplicate the kind of play that he exhibited during those months of Lynn's sanity. Now, some doubters and some haters will say Lynn was a one-hit wonder. You know, like the music industry has the one-hit wonders. You know the, the, you know the song, but you have no idea of the artist. You know, Gagnum style or Who Let the Dogs Out or My Sharona, Eye of the Tiger, the Macarena. One-hit wonders. Lynn was a one-hit wonder. Was he a one-hit wonder? Well, not for Nick fans. We still, to this day, cherish Linsanity. It was a brief time, but it was one of our franchise's greatest moments. He is our superstar, even if only for one glorious month in February of 2012. Now, I share that story about Jeremy Lin to illustrate what I believe one of the lessons that we can learn from the brief success of King Saul in our text today, what we might call Saul sanity. Recall that by the end of chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, Saul is newly anointed and recognized as the king of Israel. And he's now going to face, in chapter 11 and 12, his first test. First test of his leadership. This King Nahash and an Ammonite army to the north are surrounding an Israelite territory called Jabesh-Gilead. Okay, So remember that town named Jabesh-Gilead. That's going to come up again. I'm going to start today by reading all of chapter 11. So if you would look on with me, let's read chapter 11 of 1 Samuel to see the story of Samuel's first test of leadership. Beginning in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out your right eye and bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we might uh, send messengers through all the territories of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now before, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, The people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come 
Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may know, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, uh, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. And Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went up to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord at Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Chapter 11, as we're going to see, is going to remind us much of the book of Judges. Now, I've said this before, that 1 Samuel is a continuation of the history of the dark days when, as Judges says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samuel's history is a transition from those dark days of the judges into the birth of a kingdom. And that's why I entitled the whole series of sermons from 1 Samuel, Twilight Kingdom. Kind of the beginning of twilight in the morning, the light starting to come into the birth of a kingdom. The very last line of the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, if you just read that at the end of the book, it would leave you wanting more. It would leave the reader begging for a sequel. No king in Israel, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's not the end of the story. Chapter 11 of 1 Samuel is that sequel. In days past, with no king, In the time of Joshua and later in the Judges, every time Israel came under the threat of an enemy, God would raise someone up, raise up a deliverer. It started with Moses, it went to Joshua, but then throughout the book of Judges, God would raise up a regional judge to deliver his people from their surrounding enemies. And that was the story of every judge between chapter 3 and 16 of the book of Judges. Now here in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, we already have been introduced to this king, this Israel's first king, Saul. But the events of this chapter are more reminiscent of the book of Judges than they are of the future kingdom that would come under David. Remember, Saul, again, has already been privately anointed by Samuel, who's the national prophet. Then there was this public assembly at Mizpah where they chose by lot Saul, and Saul was where? Hiding among the baggage. Remember that? And by the end of chapter 10, Saul returns home. What was the name of his home? Remember the name of the town of his home? Gibeah. Those are the two towns, remember, Jabesh and Gibeah. 
And here was this man now anointed and chosen to lead Israel. He's already prophesied. The Spirit of God had already come upon him. He was chosen to be the one to defeat the Philistines. And now, where is he? He's home working on his farm. Meanwhile, 40 miles to the north is this harsh, bitter enemy of Israel, the Ammonites, and their king, Nahash, who just seemed to delight in heaping disgrace on the Israelites. If they besiege the city, they threaten the people, the people are so scared, they say, we'll submit to you, but then he says, all right, it's going to require you basically your right eye. He's trying to disgrace them. This city in the north was Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh was last mentioned, where do you think? In the book of Judges. When in the book of Judges? The end of the book of Judges, during the Benjaminite Civil War. That war when the 11 tribes of Israel massacred, 400,000 massacred the tribe of Benjamin. That's those last chapters where there was that horrific scene with the Levite concubine who was raped and murdered and dismembered and then distributed to the tribes. And that's what stirred up the outrage in Israel. The Levite and the concubine were of all places from the Benjaminite city of Gibeah when they were assailed in Gibeah. That's where the mob came and raped and murdered her. Now, I find this more than a coincidence that just a generation or two before, at the close of the book of Judges, now the history of Israel continues in 1 Samuel, and it again pairs these two cities, Gibeah and Jabesh where the dark book of Judges concluded with no king, that's the exact place where Israel will finally find her monarch. The place of wickedness and destruction would become the place of salvation. Now, I find this to be an important interpretive point as we understand the events that are taking place here in 1 Samuel. I think without directly saying it, The Holy Spirit is reminding us of the darkness of a prior age. He's reminding us of the days of judges. I think what the author is leading us to see here is that Saul's victory in this case was more reminiscent of the days of judges than it is going to be, as we're going to see, of David's coming kingdom. Let's look at this. When Saul heard about the attack, He's at his ranch home in Gibeah. It says in verse uh, 6 of chapter 11, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Very significant words. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. We found these same words in chapter 10, when Saul prophesied the Spirit of God rushed upon him. Prior to this, in Scripture, the Spirit of God came upon four of Israel's judges. Othniel in Judges 3, Gideon in Judges 6, Jephthah in Judges 11, and then in Judges 14 and 15, the very, very same words. The Spirit of God rushed upon Samson. Again, these words, I believe, are designed to hearken the reader back in history to the days of the judges, and in particular to the days of Samson. Further, Upon hearing of the taunting of King Nahash and the Ammonites in the north, Saul's anger is stirred up. This is a righteous indignation that he has. 
But what's his proposal? What does he do to raise up an army to fight the Ammonites? Reminiscent of the book of Judges. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. See, like it or not, this description is terribly close to those horrible events in Judges 19, 20, and 21, where it was not an oxen, but it was the Levite concubine who was cut up into pieces and distributed through the territory of Israel. Now, what's going on here? Some believe this was a cultural norm of the time, that if you wanted to issue a threat, you would send pieces of a uh, of an animal. It's kind of like that infamously grotesque Seen in The Godfather, Vito Corleone and it makes this offer you can't refuse to the film producer. Remember that? And, and the Don ordered, what, a severed head of the prized racehorse of the film producer as a threat? You either do this or else that's going to happen to you kind of thing. Well, that's similar what's going on here. That's similar what happened in Judges. And Saul uses the same kind of intimidation tactic to stir up Israel, to make them an offer they can't refuse. And just like the Godfather, it worked. By intimidation, Saul raised up an army of 330,000 men that would go on and demolish the Ammonites. That was a huge army. Just by comparison, so you have an idea, Joshua's army against Ai was 30,000. Against Jericho was 40,000. So we're talking about 10 times that almost. And they overwhelmingly demolished the Ammonites. This solidified Saul's position as king in the eyes of the people. Verse 15 says it. And they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, they had already recognized him as king, but now he can't get away. Now all Israel knows about Saul, and they made him king. As chapter 11 concludes, we find Saul at his best. His moment of glory. He, He pardons those in Israel who were initially against him. Remember there were those hashtag never Saul's in there in chapter 10. They didn't like the fact that Saul came, came into power. And he pardons them. When the Saul supporters want to go around and gather up that community and put them to death, Saul strongly objects. Look at this in verse 13. Listen to his words. It says, not a man shall be put to death this day. In other words, those people that were against me, no, none of them shall be put to death. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He gives glory to God. Yes, it was a great big army, but Yahweh gets the glory as the one who worked salvation in Israel. Saul realizes and proclaims that Israel's victory is not because of his great military skill, but it was the power of God. Now, granted, it was an overwhelming army. This was no Gideon's 300 here. 330,000 men would have greatly overwhelmed the number of Ammonites. But nevertheless, this was God's means in this situation 
to use those large numbers. But even though it was a large number, the, the army could not glory in themselves. The king could not glory. Psalm 33, no king is saved by the size of his army. And Saul understood this for this moment. And rather than rushing out in paranoia to do away with his enemies, he gave glory to God. Meanwhile, Samuel, still on the scene, he's the national prophet. He sees the military victory, and he sees this as an opportunity to call for renewal in Israel at the end of chapter 11. Verses 14 and 15 says, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Now the victory was confirmed. Saul was the right man for the job. Verse 15, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord at Gilgal. It's now confirmed. They had the right guy. But Samuel has something else in mind for this convocation. He wants to renew the kingdom. And I believe that the kingdom that he's looking to renew here is not the kingdom of Saul, but rather the kingdom of Yahweh. And he calls this gathering for more than just a victory celebration. He believed that God was going to use this to renew the people through repentance. You see, when you're on that high and you're, they, the people have this Military victory. When you have a victory in life, there's a impulse that we all have that our success is somehow linked to our righteousness. I had this great success. It must have had something to do with how good I am. But in his final speech here as Israel's judge in chapter 12, the prophet Samuel leaves no doubt. Their sin remained. They had some unfinished business to do with Yahweh. What it is, what was Israel's sin? Remember? They rejected Yahweh in their passion for a king. And up to this point, they had not repented yet. And Samuel was not going to let this go. Remember how many times he's brought this up already, right? Samuel's speech at Gilgal is going to reveal this to them. And he starts out by, by almost like a, a, almost like an apostle Paul defending himself. In the first five verses, uh, Samuel basically says, I've obeyed your, he tells the people, I've obeyed your voice, I gave you a king. Look at verse two. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I'm old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before the, before his anointed. Whose oxen have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe uh, to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Samuel is basically saying here in essence, these past 40 years as your judge under, under my leadership, They've been good, he's saying. They've been good. They've been good for the people. Samuel gave. He didn't take. He gave. Remember how Samuel warned that if you guys want a king, he's going to be someone who's going to take. He's going to take your sons, take your daughters, take your flocks. Six times we sort of were take, 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 take. Remember that? 
Well, during Samuel's time as judge, it was not like that. Once again, Samuel's preparing them for this different experience now that they're going to have, now that they have a king, especially under King Saul. It's kind of like these t-shirts that were popular about 20 years ago, these political t-shirts. Shortly after Obama came into office and replaced Bush as president, they they printed up these t-shirts, you know, with a picture of Bush on them, and it said, miss me yet? It's kind of what this is. Samuel's, though, he's doing it in advance. He's saying, look, you had it pretty good with me. Don't forget what you had. When this one starts to take from you, remember what you had. Now, despite Samuel's faithfulness as their leader, and more importantly, Yahweh's faithfulness to his covenant people for generations, now in this present crisis, Israel had forgotten their God. Look at, let's look at verses 6 through 11, because after uh, Samuel um, basically gives this apologetic of his own ministry, he goes back into history to show the faithfulness of Yahweh. Verse 6. By the way, this is what uh, Psalm 77 did that we heard the reading. Same idea. Remember what God has done. Verse 6. Samuel says to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought up your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of their hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived, safety, lived in safety. The point that Samuel is making here is that throughout your history, Israel, God has been faithful to you. Even when you were faithless, when you cried out in repentance and faith, he always saved you. It didn't matter how unfaithful they were. God was always faithful. The preservation of his people is an important theme in the scripture. God's faithfulness to his people. And in the Old Testament, God's faithfulness to Israel serves as a beautiful example to us. And though we see throughout history that God may and will leave them in a state of apostasy and forsakenness for a season, God will never fully and finally leave or forsake his people whom he foreknew. This is a truth that's revealed to us, not only in the New Testament. We see this throughout the Old Testament. If we fail to realize that the God of the Old Testament is a God of grace, we miss the story. 
He always was and always will be. When you read the Old Testament, you continually see this pattern. God saving His undeserving people by grace. And then we look at our own lives and we realize how true that is. Brethren, I'm sure that we all can recall a time in our lives when God delivered us through dangers and trials and storms and snares and temptations. Yet here you are today, still standing in the faith, still serving God. After many trials and difficulties and sins, we are all witnesses of God's matchless grace, His undeserved favor in our lives. We can all testify that even when we were faithless, He remained faithful. Even when we doubted, He came through. Now in verse 12, Samuel indicts faithless Israel. And he basically says, You didn't learn from your history. God was always faithful to you in every single trial, yet here you are again, the danger comes back, and instead of crying out to him for help, you say, give us a king to deliver us. Look at this in verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, No appeal to the one true God who always delivered them in the past. Now this is going to be Samuel's final rant about this treasonous sin of asking for a king. And he does it this time right after a victory. Remember, now they're on a high. They just won a big battle. But Samuel takes the opportunity to rebuke them while also magnifying the grace of God. And I think we see in here, brothers and sisters, the tendency that our frail flesh has to trust God. We only seem to be able to trust God until the next crisis comes along. How many times have we, like Israel, turned to our own understanding in the midst of a trial? We're no different than they. Faced with a challenge, faced with a hurdle, faced with an obstacle, Our faith is being tested, and we quickly turn to human wisdom. We shroud it in sanctified reason before we even pray about the matter. We draw conclusions. This must be the logical next step, and we never make an appeal to the one true king. The one true king and God who has always demonstrated himself faithful in every trial. Instead, motivated by fear or anxiety or logic or reason or or some fallen emotion, we move ahead blindly in our own strength. That's what Israel's mistake is here. They assumed that they needed something other than Yahweh. You see, that's the time I think when we're weakest, when we think we need something other than God. If you are led by your perceived needs, it will often take you down sinful paths. Because what are you doing? You're you're seeking to meet that need with your own understanding. Philippians 4.19 tells us, And my God shall supply every need 
according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Trust him. Samuel then in verses 14 and 15 reiterates what Israel has heard for generations, for centuries, reminiscent of Deuteronomy 28. There are going to be blessings if you follow, curses if you don't follow. But he does something interesting here. He links those blessings and curses to the people's union with their king. What happens to him happens to them. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if, here it is, both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. All right, so there's that blessing, Deuteronomy 28, follow the Lord, obey his voice, things will be good. But it's not only you, but your king. So there's a union between the people and the king. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord and rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now this foreshadows, I believe, our union with Christ, our king. Our king, Jesus, who perfectly kept God's law so that when he is righteous, we gain his righteousness. The blessings of his perfect obedience put on our account. Because our king follows the Lord and his commandments, we as his people, in union with our king, receive the blessing. That's not going to happen to Israel as we're going to see when we get to chapter 13. Their king's going to go off. Then verse 16, despite their unbelief, God is about to show both his severity and his kindness. Samuel says in verse 16, those, those words that were in the mouth of Moses, stand still and see the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. That was what Moses said when they faced the Red Sea. Stand still and see this great thing that God is going to do. He's going to open the Red Sea. Well, this time, Samuel's saying, stand still and see what God's going to do. And it's going to come, this time, God's going to come in a storm, a thunderstorm, but no regular thunderstorm. This was the wheat harvest season. This is end of May or early June, around the time of Israel's feast of Shavuot, that summer harvest feast we call Pentecost. And the former rains have passed and the latter rains are over. This is Israel's driest season. For it to deluge thunder and rain in this season would be an equivalent in our country to a snowstorm in July in Arizona. Okay, to get the idea of what, how miraculous this is. So when this storm comes, it is a miracle and it is clearly something that God uses to open the eyes of the people to the gravity of their sin. Look at verse 17 of chapter 12. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, this is the real renewal at Gilgal. It was not about making Saul king. It was about the fear of God. The fear of God's righteous wrath in this unseasonable storm 
paves the way for Israel's repentance. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask of ourselves a king. Finally, Samuel breathes a sigh of relief. They finally get it. They finally realize we've sinned greatly against the Lord. And when we've added this evil of asking for a king, they finally realize how evil it was. Their sin is exposed. This is like the fourth or fifth time Samuel has pounded this same note. They finally get it. We added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And what does Yahweh do? What does God do to his people when they commit spiritual high treason and then recognize it as sin? What does he do? Does he turn away? Does he forsake them, turning them over to their wickedness? Does he give them what they deserve? Look at verse 20 as as Samuel speaks on behalf of Yahweh. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Hallelujah. God made a way for those who have done evil. And what is true for them, brothers and sisters, is true for us, that in Christ we have a way, we have a refuge in the storm. In the gospel, we have a place of safety where even as sinners, God would say to us, do not fear, do not wallow in guilt, do not relive the errors of your past. These are empty pathways that, that cannot profit you. Instead, go forward by faith because God's grace is greater than all of your sin. Though your sins be many, His mercy is more. Hallelujah. This is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is a gospel moment here. This good news that Samuel is proclaiming to God's covenant children then and now. You have done evil. You have filled your life with empty things that cannot profit. But you don't need to fear. If you would but turn and follow the Lord today, it's like the prodigal son. Your father will be right there waiting for you to embrace you, to put a robe on you, to put a ring on your finger. No matter how many times you've rejected him, no matter how many times you've sinned, He will welcome you home. He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You see, you cannot out-sin God's grace. He will never forsake His people. Why? For His great name's sake. Because He is pleased to make you a people for Himself. Now this is a moment of triumph in an otherwise very dark season in the history of Israel. This is the renewal that Samuel sought. Very short-lived. Next time, chapter 13, we're going to see Saul, from his pinnacle here, quickly fall. 
But this is what renewal looks like in twilight. This is what renewal looks like when you're not in the full light. There is a tension between personal sin and great wickedness and seeing that and recognizing your sin as wickedness and then magnifying the grace of God and the steadfast love of God. And if only if you can, can embrace the latter will it keep you from despairing the former. You need both. You need to own your sin. You need to have no excuse for your pursuit of vain things in this world. You need to have no excuse for your self-reliance. It is your sin. You must own that. But then you don't leave it there. For there is no sin that he will not forgive by his grace. You see the balance? He'll never wink at your sin, but he will never leave his children to the consequences of their sin. And brethren, we need to relish this. It's a, it's a small moment in 1 Samuel, but, but it's a gospel moment. And sometimes even in our lives, these moments of personal renewal, where we just, where we see it clearly. It could be maybe you're on a retreat, or maybe it's your personal devotions with God, and you have this, this wonderful time with just you and the Lord. Or, or maybe it's a sermon that was preached, or, or maybe it's a worship song that you sang, or maybe you just shared the gospel with someone, and you're really on a high, and, and you turn to the Lord, and you have this personal renewal, or maybe you repent of a sin and receive grace upon grace. We live in so much evil in this world, evil without, evil within, and you have that moment, of a heavenly moment, a moment of nearness to God. Enjoy those moments. Make the most of every second because they are short-lived on this side of heaven. Just like the Knicks fan, we need to learn to embrace insanity because in this world, that's as good as it gets. You know, some of you feel like you got to go out and conquer the world and you'll never be satisfied. Sometimes it's as good as it gets. Our moments of revival, renewal in twilight, is never complete. It is never perfect. Realize, yes, we are in the New Testament. We are not in the times of Judges. We are not in the times of 1 Samuel. We're not in the times of that first earthly kingdom. But we are in the times of an already and not yet of a different nature. Christ has not yet returned. And while we've emerged from the darkness of the old, into the, uh, we've not yet come into the full light of his presence, Right? In the absence of the full light of his presence, revival will never be full until we're glorified. It will always be partial. It will not last. It will never be perfect. It will always be mixed. Even when we look at the history of the revival of God's people, it's always been this way. Go back and talk about the early church in the book of Acts, right? Great revival, real revival at Pentecost. God was saving people. People were joining a church. And what did that church look like? Sometimes it looked like Corinth. Think of the problems there. Sometimes it looked like Galatia, going back to the law after receiving the gospel of grace. It was not perfect even in the scripture when we look at the churches that formed in the wake of that first revival. Throughout history, we, we love to go back and talk about Jonathan Edwards and, and the first great awakening in this country. And as wonderful as that was, it was short-lived. It was imperfect. Edwards himself wrote about the mixed, true and false conversions at that time. But it was real. God was reviving people. 
And we need to embrace that. Likewise in our lives. Embrace the moments, those gospel moments that are so real to you. Sure, they won't last long. But when it happens, cherish that moment. When we see God's work among his church, reviving them. So often we criticize and lambaste it as false immediately. We push it away because it's uncomfortable to us or or it looks different to us. Rather than doubt what God may be doing in their lives or in your life, embrace what he does in the moment. Yes, of course, prove all things. But sometimes people stop at that. The scripture says, prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Don't forget to hold fast to that which is true. Don't let it go just because that renewal is at twilight. Just because it's not in the full light of Christ's coming. Brethren, I pray that God would revive us corporately as a church, individually in in every life. Even I pray for a revival in our nation if that were possible. Let us, as his people, embrace whatever it is that God would send us by his grace, whether it be a day or a month or a year. Embrace it. Renewal at twilight. Finally, verses 23 to 25, Samuel again reiterates the final instructions. This is his um, final uh, speech as a judge. Look at verse 23. He says, Far be it from me, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. It is as if Samuel knows they need his prayers. Not to say that their obedience was not genuine. It was genuine. Even though it was short-lived, it was genuine. But Samuel knows their history. Samuel knows the history of the people. And he knows, as we're going to see next time, the more things change the more they remain the same. And that is the history of God's people. Commitment, failure. Start, stop, start, stop. That's 1 Samuel, that's Exodus, that's Joshua, that's Judges. Likewise, in our day, in this twilight of our day, there's no greater thing that any minister of the gospel can do for his people than pray and instruct. And that's what Samuel says here. I'm going to sin against God if I cease praying for you and instructing you. That is the role and duty of ministers, of pastors. Not to be Superman. To pray for you and instruct you. This speech in chapter 12 is often referred to as Samuel's farewell. He's not going to leave the scene. He's going to come back. But it is his final speech as an official judge of Israel. But he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to continue to pray for them, and he's going to continue to teach them. Samuel was never more like our Lord Jesus when he affirms, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, I will pray for you, and I will instruct you. Jesus, the true and better Samuel, gave us the very same promise, very same promise in the Gospel of John, in his parting words, John 14, 15, 16, and 17. What did he do in those chapters? He prayed for them, and he promised them another comforter who would instruct them in the good and right way. 
Let's close by looking in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, as Jesus prays to his Father, verse 11. As Jesus prays to his Father, we are indelibly on his mind. John 17, 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Down to verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. And then go back to John 14. Just like Samuel's parting words, Samuel said, I'll pray for you. This shows us Jesus' prayer. But just like Samuel's parting words that he would instruct them, Jesus promises to continue to guide his people even after he leaves, after he ascends to heaven. Verse 15 of John 14. I'm sorry, verse, let me do verse 16 through 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Jesus will not leave us alone, brethren. Jesus, think about it, the Son of God has prayed for you. The Son of God has prayed that you would persevere and His prayers are effective. And then the Holy Spirit, the third person of God, from within your heart, continues to teach you the way of truth. With allies like that on your side, do you really think you're going to lose? Take heart. You can be confident that with allies like that, you're going to make it. Through whatever trial you're going through, even to the very last trial of death.